two, at least twice, maybe three times in the last six days, I've heard this particular question from people. Something like this. How can a good God allow such horrible, unjust things to happen in the world? I mean, is God all-powerful and then not good because he doesn't do anything about that? Or is he good, but then not all-powerful because uh, he can't do anything about that? And if that, if you're still tracking with me, if he's good and all-powerful and he still allows these things to happen, then what are we going to do with that? Fortunately, this is a question that has been asked since the beginning of recorded history. So we could find lots of information about what lots of people say about this. But for this morning, um, since we can't tackle every piece of that, I think we can look at it from one aspect today, and that's what does God do about injustice? I mean, does the resurrection have to say anything about that? And maybe you're in a place of injustice right now in your life, like you're getting it at work. Like you've been a solid performer year after year after year, but times are tough, and now you're in a place where they're like, okay, if sales don't move up in the next two months or in the next one month or in the next three months, then you're done. And that's just injustice. Maybe you've had a professor at college or a teacher at school who has an unjust grading scale. Maybe uh, this happened to a friend of mine. His final was erased. The teacher's like, well, you're just going to have to redo it. And he's like, what? I don't think so. Or maybe they lost something or you have injustice and they hold all the power. There's nothing you can do about that. Or maybe you have injustice going on in some of your relationships. Where, where there might even be some abuse, there might even be some control issues, there might even be oppression going on. And just to pause, if that's you and that's your home, uh, know that I have safe, confidential, professional referrals that I can give you because God does not want to see people oppressed and abused. And that's what we're going to talk about today is what God does about that. And I think we can see by these boards, although you might not be able to read too many, but we have a few more over here than we do over here. There are things that are broken. Uh, 40% of families have a single-parent household. Less than 2% of the deaf population knows who Jesus is and has a personal relationship with him in the United States. My dad is an alcoholic, and I don't have a good relationship with him. He is missing out on me. It's broken. A starving orphan in Haiti has to drink their own urine because they can't find water. Just the fact that we need battered women shelters. The list goes on and on, and you can look at it more later, but I think we can agree that there are things that are broken in the world. So the question is, what does God do about that? What does he do with injustice? What's his response to that. And if he has one, then do we have one? In the last 200 years, historically, North American Christians have kind of gone to one of two extremes if they've chosen to do anything about injustice. The one hand, the caricature is that uh, people would be healed, there wouldn't be injustice if they would just find out who Jesus is, and they would give their life to Jesus, then we'd, then we'd all get along, we'd have Christian values in our society, and injustice would disappear. So it's all about 
making sure people know Jesus. That's one side, generally, over the last 200 years. The other response is this extreme that people say that people who are starving, they need physical bread before they can ever find out who the real bread of life is, Jesus. And so we need to set the structures upright. Um, We need to free people of injustice. We need to use all our power, all the legislature, and then after that, tell people about Jesus. Now, this side is criticized to say, even if you love Jesus, there's still some things that are going to happen racism, discrimination, sexism, that even people who love Jesus don't fight very well. Criticism to this side is, well, you do a good job fighting evil with evil, but you never tell people about Jesus. So, I think Jesus gives us a radically better response. And in that, we see what God does about injustice in the world. So if you have a Bible, turn to Luke 4. If you need a Bible, there's one in the back. You can have it. If you don't have one, you can just take it, and, or you can look on your phone. So, or it's on the screen, but that's just lame. So Luke 4, <laughs> God's word isn't lame. You might want to write something down. That's why you should use your own Bible. Luke 4, Jesus is, is coming back to his hometown. It's a Sabbath day. Uh, the town has come and gathered in their quaint little religious building that's called the synagogue. The men and their sons are sitting on benchless seats um, or backless benches. The balcony is filled with wives, sisters, um, daughters. And in the front row is kind of the elders right over here. That means you're wise, not old, by the way. Um, <laughs> And, and they, uh, there's one that's kind of in charge of the service, so he's going through things. And then the attendant has the reading of law, because that's really important to the Jews. And then there's the reading from the prophets. And so Jesus is this young new prophet on the scene, or young new rabbi on the scene. And so whenever someone comes back after they become a rabbi, it's like, woo, hometown hero, like here, you get to read. And so this huge scroll is handed to him and he sets it on this podium that happens to be kind of in the middle of the room. And, and he pulls it open and there's no verse division. So it takes him a little while to find where he's going to read. But he opens up Isaiah to the point where we call Isaiah 61 And then he says this, verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the captives or the prisoners and the recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls the scroll back up He gives it to the attendant, and he sat down. And then he said, Today, this prophecy or this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. If we had a moment of like meet and greet and you were all raging extroverts like me, that's kind of the uproar that I picture after Jesus sits down and says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. They would have been like, what? It is a big deal when prophecies are fulfilled for the Jewish people. So, um, so we're going to see what that means, what I think that means today, and maybe you'll agree and maybe you won't. But the writer wanted us to pick up five particular activities that Jesus was about 
proclaiming good news to the poor, proclaiming freedom for the captives, giving sight to the blind, releasing the oppressed, and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. So just quickly what I think those things are. One, Jesus came to preach good news to the poor. Um, Because at that time, people who were rich, everybody thought they had God's blessing. And those that were poor were under God's judgment. And so the fact that Jesus says, I've come to give good news to the poor, says way more than just like, I'm going to tell them who I am. He's saying if, you're, if you are physically poor, then you can trust and find your security in God. And warning, if you're rich, guess what? Your chances of placing your trust, your security, your hope, in God is far less. You have a far less chance of doing that because it's so easy to put your trust in wealth. And so, I mean, Jesus even said that in Luke 6.20 that we read earlier. um, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, I don't know about you, but sometimes um, I don't have a reading disability. Uh, Not that I was getting defensive about that. But uh, I realize that I add words When I read. So when I read that, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. I always read it as, you'll get the kingdom someday. If you're poor, guess what? Someday, you're going to have the kingdom of heaven. But that's not what it says. It's a present tense, and what it's saying is that now the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. Think about that. If you're poor in the time of Jesus and you're hearing, blessed are the, those who are poor, for theirs is the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven belongs to you today. Even now, it's for people like you. That's a revolutionary statement. Jesus is bringing justice to those who are last and those who are lost. Because Jesus is also talking about those who are spiritually poor. Spiritually poor people know they need God. Those who are spiritually rich think they can do it all on their own. So Jesus was coming to bring justice for them as well. Jesus came to proclaim freedom for the prisoner. Um, you, could, you could spiritualize this and you said, yes, that means Jesus wants to free people from their sin. And I would say, absolutely, that's a true statement. But I think he's also talking about people who are physically in prison. And in that time, people who are physically in prison were neglected. They were at the bottom of the social structure. That means they were even below people that were handicapped, disabled, and diseased. Nobody hung out with prisoners. And Jesus is bringing justice to those who are forgotten when he makes this statement. It says that Jesus came to give sight to the blind. Now, again, like I just said, if you were blind in Jesus' day, that meant you were discriminated against because if you had a a disability, it meant that either you sinned or your parents sinned and you did something wrong. You were kind of ostracized. You were neglected. You were left uh, to kind of be put out of the religious circle. And so when Jesus came to literally give sight to the blind... Yes, to give sight to those who are spiritually blind, to say, I am the way, I am the truth, I'm the life. But when he gave sight physically to the spiritually blind people, he was saying, you can re-enter society. 
He was bringing justice to those who were discriminated against. These are radical, revolutionary statements that Jesus was making. He came to release the oppressed. People were spiritually oppressed because of their own sin, but far too often the justice system, even of God's people, had a way of breaking. And unfortunately, they did not live up to the scriptures that said, care for the widow, look out for the orphan, um, let the foreigner come in and, and take from your field. And they didn't do that. Um, the Old Testament accuses people over and over and over again that God's people who are wealthy would take advantage of the widow. They would take advantage of the orphan. They would take advantage of these people who really couldn't speak for themselves. They'd even steal property from them. And, and, and God's people um, were in trouble with, with God about this. The prophets um, throughout the Old Testament would come and they would speak on behalf of God. And, and what usually happened was when, when times were good, if you study some Old Testament history, and, and their king was doing well, and the surrounding enemies were not invading, then they just kind of lived this plush life. One prophet, Amos, one of my favorites, he calls the Jewish women, you fat cows. Um, you just sit on your couches while people go hungry in the fields near you. Um, Amos 2 says it this way, um, the people of Israel have sinned again and again, and I will not let it go unpunished. They sell honorable people for money. They sell poor people for sandals. They trample helpless people in the dust. They shove the oppressed out of the way. Father and son sleep with the same woman corrupting my name. I mean, he's being graphic here of explaining what this oppression looks like. And God is not pleased with that. In fact, um, God is even saying, even though I have a favorite people, I'm not playing favorites. And since these people are oppressing those that are downtrodden, I will let another nation come in and take over to set things right. See, God, I think Jesus was bringing justice to those who were abused and those who were neglected with these statements. Even if that meant that he had to punish his power holders that were his chosen people. So I think when Jesus inaugurates this statement, when he says, this is what my mission is going to be about, these are radical, revolutionary statements about setting the world right. But if that's not all, the, the last one um, was where I spent a ton of time this week. He says, finally, I want to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, this Really, what this is talking about is um, this Old Testament idea of the year of Jubilee. I don't know if you've ever heard of the year of Jubilee, but, uh, but God kind of set some things in motion with his people, like uh, the writer of Genesis said in Genesis 1, that God created the world in six days and on the seventh day he rested. Now, did he actually do it in six 24-hour days? I think he could have. I don't think my faith in Jesus depends on that happening. 
It could have, but I think it's telling a different story than scientifically how the world was made. It's telling a story of creation, order, and rhythm to the world. And he, he worked and he rested. So when the people got the land in Exodus, when they were coming into their land, God said, okay, we're going to set up a sacred contract here. Guess what? Six days a week, you're going to work and then you're going to rest and you're not going to do any work and your animals aren't going to do any work and you're going to depend on me. Um, and then every six years, you're going to work the land for six years, but on the seventh year, you're going to rest and you're going to let the land rest. And, 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 um, in our day and age, I grew up in an agricultural community. Like this is, this is good farming. It's called a fallow year and the land recovers and it's more productive in six years on one year off and six years on one year off. It's way more productive than if you go and you go and you go. Now, I don't know how many of you are farmers in the room. Uh, But does this apply to the way we live and the way we work? I don't know how many of you try to be um, people who work seven days a week. And you go, and you go, and you go, and you go, and you go. Where's Chad? Oh, yeah. Chad was like, did you take your Sabbath? Uh, (laughs) Sort of. And you go, and you go, and you try to work seven days a week, and do you find out if you're productive? in seven days a week? Or do you find out that you're actually more productive if you work hard and you rest? And you work hard, you create, you create, you create, and then you recreate. Well, God is saying, this is how I want things to work. And not only that, not only if you bought land, you you work the land for six years, you take a year off. Now, if you have a Hebrew slave, so one of your your kinsman is so in debt that they have to move into slavery with you. Um, if they work the land for six years, guess what? Your seventh year, you free them. They've worked. They've paid off whatever the debt was, so they're free. So this is this thing that's going. But then he kind of crescendos the whole deal. And he said, now, seven's a big deal if you haven't figured that out yet. Now, six years on, one year off of the work. Six years on, one year off of the land. Guess what? Six times, seven times around, seven times we're going to go through that seven-year cycle. If you remember your, your multiplication, seven times 749. Um, after the seventh year of sevens, we're going to have a jubilee. That 50th year, it's going to be a giant party. Nobody's going to do work. No one. We're going to let the land just see what it produces. And anybody, not just Hebrew slaves, any slaves, guess what? Those people, they're going to get to go free. And if you're in debt, college students, grad school students, guess what? Debts are canceled, erased, gone. I wish that would happen. Get back on track. Um, And basically... Uh, what the Jew, oh, and if you sold property because you were so far in debt, it's got to go back to the original owner. Because the land was a big deal in the promises and the sacred contract of God. And remember, he told them this when they were slaves in Egypt, when they were in captivity, when they were enslaved because of their race. If you were Hebrew and you were in Egypt, you were a slave. That, I think, is unjust. Ironically, or sadly, in America, in 1808, 
just write a book on this. In 1808, when America finally decided to stop the importation of African slaves, we had four million African people that were in slavery. Four million in 1808 enslaved because of their race. And so what this year of Jubilee did is it balanced out the economic system. Basically, what the Jubilee was supposed to do is knock down its unfair systems and create equal opportunity, a chance for everyone to start over on an equal playing field. You could say that God really wanted to maintain justice in his economic system. but And that's really cool, isn't it? Isn't that kind of cool? I think it's kind of cool. Now, think about how much faith it would take to actually pull off the year of Jubilee. Because, because you've already had your 49th year, which is a Sabbath year. It's that seventh year where you're not supposed to do any work. You're supposed to just see what it produces. If you're in business, I wonder how that would go over. You know, we'll just see what work that will come. You know, I won't make any calls to schedule, to speak at any conferences. We'll just see what the work comes in. I won't actually make any sales calls for my church. We'll just see what comes in. You know, I, uh, I won't go to work. We'll just see if my boss notices. Um, this, <laughs> this probably won't go over very well, but this was a chance for people to trust God in the 49th year. But then they had to do it again the next year with no refrigerators. And no Costco's and no Sam's Clubs and no Cubs Foods. And they had to be like, okay, what's our vine going to produce? As I left it last year and now I'm leaving it again this year. And if you just think about it, then the next year, you got to wait for the land to actually produce something. So you actually have to go three summers of trust for these people in their harvest. That takes a lot of faith. I mean, the cool thing is everybody gets a clean slate especially if you're a slave, especially if you're drowning in debt. This is a cool thing. But what if you're the one who has the money? What if you're the one who happened to loan out $10,000 or $100,000 and you have five or six people that are sort of on their payment schedules and all of a sudden their payment schedules drop off and you're like, hey, I know that Jubilee is coming. Everybody knows that Jubilee is coming. It's the of Atonement next year. It's like March. I mean, you're kind of missing some payments here. Oh yeah, but it's gonna, you're, gonna, you're just going to let it go away, aren't you? Um, what if you're the one who had the slaves? And you didn't have the slaves based on race. You're not discriminating against people. These are people that literally had to become enslaved because they were poor and they were doing work and you were caring for them and they were, they were almost more like indentured servants. And, and, and these people worked your land and worked your land and you knew that you were going to have to release dozens of people, give away your workforce. How's that going to go over? I think for people that were celebrating the Jubilee, All of a sudden, it didn't become, oh, this amazing thing that God has done for us. That he's released us from the debt of the bondage of slavery in Egypt, if we were Old Testament Jews, or from the the chains of sin and addiction and, and doubt in our lives. Like, oh, that's amazing that the God of the universe would release these huge debts so that we could live for him and live with him. Something that I think some of us forget to ponder. And so when we forget to ponder that, 
all of a sudden now we look at the haves and the have-nots and we think, you know, it's great if I'm in debt, it's great if I'm in bondage, but it's not so great if I am the one who has to give this stuff up. Then it's not so great. And I searched and searched and searched and searched. And that, prove me, correct me if I'm wrong, really. Um, I don't find any place in Scripture, zero evidence that the Jewish people, God's people, actually kept the Jubilee. They never celebrated it. Never. Never. Now, why? Why would you not celebrate this amazing, amazing thing? I think it's because power and control are really hard for us to let go of. Think about the injustices of the world. I just thought of a few um, yesterday. Poverty, third world debt, sex trafficking, racism, sexism, discrimination, unfair distribution of resources. Don't those stem from power and control? I want to control these situations. Think about the cross. Think about this ultimate symbol for the Rome, for Rome, of what? Of force, of oppression, of murder, of brutality, of if you get in our way, guess what? We will nail you to this and show you that power and control rule the day. That this is the way of Rome. And yet, when Jesus goes up on that cross, he doesn't just pay for sin. He does pay for sin, and that's a big deal. He does go do battle for death. That's a big deal. And he conquers death, but he conquers more than death. He conquers the ultimate evil when he rises from the grave and he breaks the power of evil. And that says now that this life as it is, is no longer this way. That these things are no longer the way that we rule the day. That this is now, that I am setting the world right today. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, Jesus says. And so when I think about what's God's response to the injustice of the world, I think he enters the scene as a helpless baby in a stable with no one to notice him. And he grows into a young Jewish prophet who eats with sinners and feasts with friends and confronts the corrupt authorities and he surrenders in prayer and agony to a cruel and unjust death on a cross. That's what God's response to injustice is. And with that, he breaks the power and he says that you don't have to fight evil with evil anymore. You can fight evil with this new power, this power of this new kingdom. And, and that's why I think that so many love songs are written. Because it's not to be cliche, but it is the power of love. Of this suffering, sacrificial love. That, that force and control will not win the day anymore. That Caesar is not Lord, as all through the story of Acts says. That Jesus 
is Lord, that a new power is in town, and that is the power of suffering kingdom love. And if that's God's response to the world, then, then what's ours? So I like to use these three terms. They're helpful for me. Mercy, compassion, justice. So if mercy is, if someone's hungry, mercy is giving someone a meal. Compassion, though, is teaching, is doing something about it. It's teaching them to cook, okay? Mercy is giving someone a meal. Compassion is teaching them to cook. Guess what justice is? Helping them open a restaurant. If people are drowning, mercy is jumping into the river where people are drowning and rescuing them. Compassion is holding a swim class so that people don't drown. Guess what justice is? Justice is running upstream and beating up the person that is throwing them in the lake. God hates oppression. So when Jesus says, today scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, it is absolutely spiritual. It is absolutely the power of of Jesus coming into the world and saying that I am the Messiah and that anyone can come to me. That God does not have this division. He does not play favorites. You do not have to keep these sacrificial rules that it's about giving your heart and your trust and yourself to God, that that is your spiritual act of worship and all can come. There is no discrimination when you enter, but it's physical. That discrimination and injustice and racism and sexism and all these other kinds of isms are crushed by Jesus. And if he does that, then I think we have to too. I think it can't just be this spiritual thing because power and control are just too hard to give up. And it can't just be physical because if we don't use the power of God, if we don't actually live out the gospel of Jesus, then we have no power. Then we'll succumb to fighting evil with evil. Neither of those options will work. We have to have both. That's why when we started this church, not quite two years, but almost, we're getting there, ago we said this must be something that we tackle. We have to be about restoring things that are broken in the world. One of our values has to be serving humbly, which really means like serving with justice. That's why even in our logo, we have these broken pieces that are becoming whole, if you read it like in English, left to right, top to bottom. It's brokenness to wholeness. Yeah, subtlety. Yeah, Mm -hmm. we're shocked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because we wanted to say that God is about restoring things that are shattered to things that are broken. This is supposed to permeate our whole church. This is supposed to permeate our whole lives. When we declare and demonstrate God's kingdom, we say that peace and justice and love now reign. And if you're not sure, spend a little time in the book of First John. He says things like, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another because love comes from God. And if we love, then we are a child of God and we know God. But if we don't love, then we're not a child of God because his love isn't in us. Dear friends, since we've loved so much, we surely ought to love each other. 
No one has ever seen God, but yet if we love people we can see, then we will love God who we can't see. And if we don't love people we can't see, then we won't love people or we won't love God who we can't see. And if someone says, I love God, but hates a Christian brother, for that person is a liar. Jesus ties love to justice because justice requires sacrifice. Because if I own a restaurant a couple streets down and my new buddy Nee, the refugee Thai restaurant owner down the street, comes and he says, hey, I know how to cook. Do I really want to open a restaurant and help him to open a restaurant? Because that might mean there's competition. If I teach someone to fish and I own a fishing boat in the league, do I really want to give someone a fishing boat? Do I really want to equal the playing field of giving someone else a piece of the lake? That requires sacrifice. But if we are disciples of Jesus and we want to join him in his mission to seek justice and to love mercy and to be working with the poor and the broken and the oppressed, then ultimately we have to battle the political, the social, and the economic systems of our day. And the only way we'll do that is if we really love the one who can break those systems. And out of that overflowing love from the God who gave us the Jubilee, we will love others. So where do you see injustice in the world? And what are you willing to do about it? Would you pray with me? God, I I really, you're messing with me. Because if we don't love, we'll ultimately not sacrifice. and, And sacrifice is hard. So I'd really just rather say, God, help us to be the remedy, but not do anything concrete about it. And yet you say, no. You say in a a parable of divine judgment to those on your right who ask, God, where were you when we helped you, when we gave water to those who were thirsty or food to those who were hungry or visited those in prison? You said, hey, whatever you did to the least of these, you did for me. You gave us concrete examples of compassion and mercy and justice. And God, I pray that in the next minutes, in the next hours, in the next days, and in the next weeks, as a community, you would give us concrete ways to to bring justice to the world, to let um, you work through us to set things right in the world. And so, God, we offer ourselves... We offer ourselves to be the remedy. Um, God, as we um, receive an offering, now we offer uh, our finances. We sacrifice to be the remedy in the world, um, locally and worldwide. That we'd love you, God, and that we would love neighbor. Amen. I'm going to get all excited again. And... um. I pray that they would be people who could not speak, that they would speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. So as we go today, in the love of Jesus, I pray that you would speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all those who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. 
defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Go out in the name of Jesus, and if you want to pray for the Covenant Pine staff, come back to the booth. Have a great Sunday. Thanks.